the unsurpassed penetrating and perfect truth is seldom met with even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it. We can remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. So today's Founders Day. And our founder is Koho Zenji who's the Japanese monk that taught Reverend Master Jiu in Japan. Now, people have often queried this, saying that, after all, Reverend Master Jiu over there was the one who led the community to build the temple. And in some sense, that's, it's true to say that that's what our foundation is. We have a temple. We have a room to sit in. We have chairs to sit on. Um, most of all, the temple represents uh, a place we can come to for a short period of time, a medium period of time, or for a very long period of time that helps us establish, at least temporarily, a sense of separation from the worldly, everyday sources of discomfort from the distractions. So when people come here, we, generally speaking, ask them to refrain from making a living while they're here. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of your job before you can come. It means that you know we don't go through the normal actions of earning money while we're here. Um, we're celibate while we're here. Um, at least that's for lay people. Monks are asked to remain celibate permanently. In other words, we try to separate ourselves from a lot of the mechanisms of daily life that have a tendency to be causes of distraction, of a watering down of the ability to be specifically conscientious about what's right in front of us. Which means we're learning to a great extent um, to live without undue involvement in anxiety and regret, undue involvement in anticipation of the future and all of those kinds of things. I mean, this is familiar stuff, right? Everybody who comes here for a weekend uh, experiences a little of this. That's why God invented Sundays. So you could get away from the other six days of the week for one day. Very good idea, Sundays. So Reverend Master Jiu built the temple. And as I said or suggested a moment or two ago, many of us in the early days in particular couldn't understand why she definitely attributed the foundation to Kohuzenji, who was her master. And yet it makes perfect sense, really. From her point of view, it was not possible to attribute to herself the strength and the inspiration that built the temple. 
she doesn't attribute that to the personality of her master. She attributes it to her master because he was a living embodiment of the ancestral line that dates back 80-plus generations to Shakyamuni because he was the living embodiment of training itself, what we call the empty circle, which is itself embodied in every person in the ancestral line and also in you and me. So she was quite emphatic. <coughs> this was Koho Zenji's foundation. And if I were to go out and found a temple tomorrow, which I, might, I would like to lay down in writing, I am not, um, let's get that really clear. I've had enough misunderstandings lately for, for one week. Um, if I were, I would attribute it definitely to Rev. Master Jiu, because it simply isn't possible to do anything else. The fruits of training arise from the Buddha nature and from the embodiment of that Buddha nature whom we knew or continue to know uh, in this life. That make enough sense? I hope it does. That's what that's the source of the strength that makes a foundation. <coughs> Energy, uh, intelligence, willingness to say things when they need to be said, um, leadership skills, whatever. All that sort of stuff <coughs> is helpful, but it's negotiable. The Buddha nature is not negotiable when it comes to matters like this. Okay? It's very clear-cut that um, the source of, of life and of our training is not in our intelligence or our wit or even our persistence or patience or anything else we may choose to attribute to ourselves, it lies in the Buddha nature itself, which gives us patience, which gives us tenacity, which gives us right intention and all the other components of the Eightfold Path. They're made available to us. We don't come up with them ourselves. Okay, we're not reinventing some kind of cosmic wheel every time we get born. It's not like that. We accept the gifts that come. And they come from our Buddhas and ancestors. They come from our own master. They come from the Buddha itself. Now, uh, the temple is a very excellent foundation. And so is the order uh, which is, you know, a whole bunch of people spread all over half the world, well, a quarter of the world. Um, I think there are 100-plus monks in the order, and then there are lay ministers, and then, of course, there's the whole of the congregations and people who meditate as in our tradition. All of these form a, a kind of body, Kozenji founded all that too. He never met any of them 
in person. I don't think. I wonder if there's anybody in the order now who ever met Kohozenji. I think Mokurai did. But the rest of us, he's a photograph. Okay? He's a word in a book. He's a recollection. And he's the living source of what we got. What he founded, what the Buddhas and ancestors seek to found, what the Buddha really founds, is not a set of buildings or a chunk of land with a fence around it. It isn't a temporary refuge from the distractions of the world. What is truly founded is the training itself, the individual responsibility within each of us that is capable of putting that training into practice, capable of accepting the gifts that are offered and then making use of them instead of just putting them on a shelf. Um, I'd like to read you a bit of something, which is why I brought this book. It's a collection of pieces mostly from the Pali Canon. I'll read you a piece off the back of the book first. This is from Shakyamuni Buddha himself. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nirvana. Nirvana means the extinguishing of a lamp. It is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified, peace, the deathless, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, Nirvana, purity, freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond. Having nothing clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That is Nirvana, I tell you, the total ending of old age and death. No human being founds Nirvana. Okay? Nobody. However, to say that that's the true foundation remains true. We enter the island if we want to go that far. We enter the training, which is the path leading to the island. And Dogen would say, actually, the training itself is the island, just also true. But we cannot attribute to anybody or to any circumstance, nothing in the mind or the body or in circumstance anywhere in the universe is the source of nirvana. It is itself. We come from it, it not does not 
come from us. However, in our awareness, it becomes apparent, visible, touchable, if we make the effort to go there. The going, the choosing to go, and the destination are all the foundation. Temples come and go. The island doesn't come or go. It's a matter of, I suppose, I'm not going to say suppose, it's a matter of how far you want to take this. Now, one monk whose memory I respect used to say that a temple, Buddhist temple, should be able to offer something to everybody. So that if a person came here with no immediate intention of making that much commitment to the practice, but wanted to do a little practice, then the temple can help. And this is true. Okay? But it only helps because the steps that are taken by that individual are steps towards the island. They're not steps to anywhere else. This temple, any temple, only works because the island is there. Because whatever we do is a step in that direction. You can't come here, really, and expect it to be otherwise. Which is why Reverend Master Gio used to discourage things, at least the people who were here, discourage things like hobbies and distractions of all kinds. Because they're the cultivation of an alternative agenda, an alternative set of intentions, and therefore an alternative set of activities that lead somewhere else towards competence or the acquisition of gains of one kind or another, even if they're just mental gains, which most people seem to value more highly than physical ones, although there's no justification for it. Um, I mean, really, okay? You try to get an education, it's no different from trying to get your lunch, really. It's just stuff. If Master used to say quite often, a PhD stands for piled higher and deeper. <laughs> and I concur. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> I guess education's good for something. It helps you remember things. Um, damn, I really have lost my thread. Anyway, let's start with another one. It's good not to plan on coming to a temple with a whole lot of preconceived intentions. Because the chances are they're going to be mistakes and you're going to be disappointed. 
I've never met an exception to that rule. Uh, we have all sorts of plans, some of them quite conscientious and well-intended, but nevertheless, it never quite works out that way. Whatever we find here is always a little uncomfortable and pretty quickly because we find that, well, they didn't do it the way I thought they would. Well, they really do an awful lot of that, and there's more of that than I thought there would be. Now, why do they talk so much? Why don't they talk more? Etc. You know how it goes. Everybody's got their own set of expectations. And they're never met, really. Our hope, however, the fundamental hope that lies at the bottom of it all, that can be met. But usually not quickly. Usually it takes a while. And that hope and the patience that is needed for that hope to materialize are part of the foundation. They're part of the practice that's conducted in the temple. They're part of the teaching. And they're part of the unmoving essence of the matter. They also are not negotiable. I've never seen anybody able to live here without patience. It doesn't seem to be possible. There's a set of vows we take from time to time. Uh, we, we, we take them when we do renewal of vows, which we do every couple of weeks. It's a, a ceremony dedicated to the precepts and to taking the precepts. Again, regularly, because the precepts matter a great deal, and they slip through our fingers all the time, so we remind ourselves of them regularly. In a formal ceremony, once every two weeks, we pretty much have to remind them, uh, ourselves of them about every ten minutes, but that's another story. Um, I'm talking about the ceremony. Part of that ceremony is the vows of the bodhisattva, or bodhisattva vows. However innumerable beings may be, I vow to save them all. However inexhaustible the passions may be, I vow to transform them all. However limitless the Dharma may be, I vow to comprehend it completely. However infinite the Buddha's truth is, I vow to realize it. Now, this is a pretty tall order, and it seems so presumptuous to a lot of people because they know who they are. They recognize limitations that they're pretty certain they have and pretty certain that they've always had. And they know that to expect me or anybody else to transform all their passions is a lot to ask. Or to save every being in the universe? Well, that's pretty steep too, isn't it? You're never even going to meet very many of them. So it's a matter of understanding what those vows are truly pointing to. They're pointing simply towards the island, the place within ourselves and within all existence 
where those vows are kept, where they are always kept, they're never broken and never have been. All we have to do is go there. We don't have to expect such a radical demonstration of spiritual, what, supremacy, as to expect the fulfillment of those vows in ourselves as we are. Certainly we cannot expect it. To encounter it, that perhaps they are already met, is another matter. That comes a little further down the pike. But to expect it of oneself, to expect sainthood of oneself, is the sort of presumptuousness that produces mental breakdowns. Quite a few people have had precisely such mental breakdowns. Not here, I don't think, but it's moderately common in some traditions where idealism and its, its pitfalls have not been adequately explained. And some religions don't explain them very well. You see, those vows are not an ideal. They're a thing you actually can do well within your ability. Because you see, you are actually the island yourselves. Everybody is. It's a matter of realizing it and then actuating it, making it a reality for yourself, not insisting on being somebody else, not insisting on having another dimension to your life and to your personality that is not the island. You know, it sounds like an act of arrogance and pride to say, I am God. And it is, by and large. However, what else are you going to say? If you start saying, I am not the Buddha nature, you can say that a few times and get away with it. Eventually, you ain't going to get away with it anymore. I mean, who do you think you are if you're not the Buddha nature? Somebody special? Somebody different? I'd be interested in knowing the details of that. I know we have personalities and bodies that we have and the appearances that we have. And we have expectations and hopes and a whole, you know, we have the whole gamut of stuff. Everybody does. But that's not a foundation. That's something that's born and dies rather briefly and quickly, comes and goes. And it's moot even while it remains. Seems terribly flexible. People change all the time. And then they lose what they thought they had. I used to know all sorts of things, and I don't seem to know them anymore. 
Not because I got wiser, but because I don't know what, but I don't seem to know him anymore. I, I found it extremely difficult to explain. I don't think I discovered ignorance, and that's my new asset. Uh, I don't think it works quite that way either. But whichever way it goes, we are very shifting sand, all of us. That's not a foundation. It's just sand. So who are we? This needs to be looked into. The question of who am I matters a great deal. It doesn't help in the least to think about it philosophically. And by and large, it doesn't help much in the early years of training, but eventually it is a question that will not go away. Because questions of keeping the precepts and failing to keep the precepts, and how could this happen, make that question unavoidable. What am I made of is the beginning of the question. But simply who am I is what it boils down to in the end. And then we just sit and the question dissolves itself into a, another way of, of seeing where the question itself is, diminishes, certainly ceases to be a disturbance becomes a source of peace instead. Perhaps that is the beginning of how we become the island. Or at least a resident on the island, which means that we're part of the island. Part of the earth of the island. It's very important for us not to attribute too much to our own personalities. It's also very important for us not to attribute too much to the personality of our teachers, of our founders, of the Buddhas and ancestors. Don't ask from Shakyamuni what Shakyamuni can't give. He can give you the teaching and give you the truth, but he can't give you his appearance in that doorway right now. Okay? There are a lot of things Shakyamuni can't do. And he's quite happy with that. We need to be happy with it, too. There's a, a record of a conversation that took place between the Buddha and the disciple. This was a long time ago, of course. He was conducting a talk to a bunch of people. Clearly, there were some monks gathered around him. And one of them, apparently, I think it's implied in the text that he was very young, was gazing at the Buddha, wouldn't miss a single shift on the man's face, listened to every word, was staring at him. And the Buddha kept on giving his discourse, and this kid kept on staring at him. And finally the Buddha said, you got to stop that. If you want to see me, you look into the Dharma. This is just a rotting body. You look into the Dharma. In the Dharma, you may see me, but nowhere else. It's very important. Never, if you can, 
invest too much in the personal presence of a teacher because they die. They turn out to be people you didn't realize they were. Still teachers, but nevertheless, well, I never thought he'd do that. I never thought she'd turn out to be like that. Never thought he'd say a thing like that to me, etc. All that stuff. We get disappointed. We bet on the wrong horse. We thought there was such a thing as a wise person. Not realizing there is wisdom, but a wise person is another thing altogether. We thought that the person was the source of the teaching. We didn't think that perhaps the teacher, him or herself, attributed it all to something completely different. That Reverend Master Jiu would attribute the whole foundation not to anything she did, but to her master. It was a thing we had a lot of trouble with in the early days. It was perfectly true. Wisdom exists. Wise people well, in a way, you can say yes, but ask them about it. Ask what they think about their own wisdom. It takes quite a while for training to mature. And commitment is what makes it possible. There's an old poem that we used to recite as part of a ceremony here in the early days. We don't seem to do it anymore. But it's still recorded in a couple of our books. You have to hunt for it. It used to be recited at the head novice's Dharma ceremony. I'm not going to explain what that is right now, but it's um, a poem. Quite, you know, actually, it's prose, I guess, isn't it? But anyway, it sounds like a poem. It's a chunk of prose, about that long. In it, there's one or two lines that run something like this. A pound of rice loses nothing when put into a pot, although waste floats to the top. You're not going to lose anything because of commitment. You know, commitment doesn't rob you of things. It may change some of the directions that you were initially embarked on, but you're not going to lose anything. Not a darn thing. You're not going to lose your mind. Even though I ran into a person one time in Penang, I think it was, who said that he was afraid that if lay people meditated, they would go mad, which apparently is a common belief among a lot of, of Chinese folks. You're not going to go mad. You're not going to lose your competence. 
You're not going to lose your health, at least not permanently. Um, you're not going to lose uh, your preferences, even. Although they become softer. And yet waste floats to the top. Hard to say what waste is. Compost, I suppose. But there are some things that kind of drift away, float to the top. They won't necessarily be the things you thought. They won't float to the top and disappear on our schedule. It happens in accordance with how hot the water is. Uh, remember, we're talking about rice cooking in a pot, which brings us to the subject, of course, of mild discomfort. Boiling in water is not a comfortable prospect for anybody. For rice, I presume it's okay. However, the point is that training is not easy. It is not particularly comfortable. It's a cooking process. But look at what the result is. It's something that is food for the whole world. I don't mean to have you run off and think, somebody's going to eat me, okay? It's not quite like that. But if one becomes generous, as inevitably you do when you cook in that pot, you're able to offer way more than you ever thought you could when you started. You know, we come to get something, but if you stick around for long enough, you find that there's an awful lot more to give than there is to get. And that get what you do get out of training is the ability to give, the real ability to give, <laughs> not something you came up with on your own, but something that seems to come from the island. And will come to meet you long before you've arrived. Shakyamuni tried to teach people generosity as the first item in training, the first item in the teaching. He encouraged people, learn to be generous with your mind, with your efforts, with your time with whatever you seem to regard as an asset. Be generous with it. And then he would move on to other aspects of the training, but the generosity was the first thing. And that's what cooked rice is. It has been said by a Christian teacher that all people, regardless of who they are, all beings, in the long run, they become food set out on the tables of eternity, and their blood is the wine. And all of their passions are distributed as manure on the fields for the next crop. It's an interesting perception. I don't think it was just a poetic fancy of some kind. I think he saw something. Anyway, it's Founders Day, and there we are.
I think I've said enough on the we'll call it quits. Thanks very much.